Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. We record each episode before a live audience. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We're incredibly lucky to have Catherine Bracey with us today. Um, she has a, a really interesting history doing something that I hope is going to become more common, which is bringing tech into the arena of civic engagement. Um, and I think, I think it hopefully will become an actual field in the future. Uh, and now she's running a really interesting uh, nonprofit startup called Tech Equity Collaborative, which we're going to be talking about a lot today. Can you give us sort of a brief overview? You and I had talked about this uh, months ago when we had lunch before, and you were telling me before the show that Tech Equity Collaborative, as you had conceived of it maybe six months or a year ago, is very different than what it is today. Can you sort of talk a little bit about the evolution of the, of the concept of it and how, what, what do you guys do now? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell the genesis story. So um, <laughs> I live in the Uptown apartment complex, which is right uh, next to the Fox Theater, and across the street from the old Sears building, what will soon be the Uber building. And at the time that Uber made the announcement that they were moving in, uh, many of you who I assume live in Oakland, will lived in Oakland at the time, will remember that the reaction was um, not super positive. And I'll admit that, you know, I also had this sense of, of dread. And this was like pre-Uber being like ultra evil. They were just kind of middle of the road evil at the time. <laughs> they were just approaching evil. Yeah, this is, this is almost two years ago. It was September of 2015. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what is it going to mean for my neighborhood for tw- the time the announcement was 2,500 employees to just be like parachuted in? Um how will, how will that change literally the complexion of my, you know, my neighborhood, my neighbors? That was my initial like visceral reaction, a little bit of dread. Um, and then I started thinking, you know, in my, as you said, spent my whole career working at the intersection of technology and civic engagement or politics at, at some level. And, and sort of tangentially to that is just the tech industry's role in, you know, social responsibility. Uh, and it just, I was just like pondering this and thinking like, what does it mean for our economy when the most valuable privately held company in the world can announce that they're moving 2,500 high paying jobs to a neighborhood that has a median income of about $25,000 a year. And then, and the community would say, no, don't come. You're not adding value. Like for me as someone who works at that nexus, that was super fascinating, but also just like as a citizen, really scary. Like that is not a sustainable, you know, an indicator of a sustainable future economy. Um, And so then I started thinking like, well, what would have to change in order for um, that not to be the case? Uh, And that was sort of the genesis of, of tech equity. And so I started thinking, you know, look, we live in Oakland and this is two years ago now. The wave is coming. We're standing on the shores watching our neighbors in San Francisco be totally ravaged by um, what were, like, I think well-intentioned development efforts um, and completely unintended consequences. Um, And how do we make sure that doesn't happen here um, while still bringing the growth uh, and development that Oakland needs and deserves? 
And so we started thinking, okay, we'll build an eco a tech industry ecosystem in Oakland that can be a model for how you build a kind of a, a tech industry that creates broad-based opportunity and growth. And it became really clear really fast that um, this may or may not be a, a popular statement. It isn't actually, you know, if we're trying to solve this larger dynamic of displacement and inequality in the Bay Area, tech is not the root cause of that issue. And if that's what we wanted to try and solve, approaching it from tech companies need to change wasn't going to get us there. Like that would not stop the um, massive displacement of black Oaklanders from the city. And so we decided we really needed to change our focus to um, activating a, a constituency, tech, tech workers, who are by and large not really engaged in local politics, and get them to advocate for an economy that is driven by the industry they work in um, that's creating broad-based growth for everyone. And that means engaging on the housing crisis. That means engaging on workforce development. And that's not just DNI and your company, but also, you know, there's a, a work, a government-funded workforce development system that is not really structured to work for a 21st century economy. And tech has a lot to offer to fix that system. Um, and then access to technology, just the tools that we all need to function as uh, citizens, let alone function in the economy. Um, so that's what we're doing now. And we're a member-driven uh, organization. So we, want, we are asking tech workers to join us and add their voice to our work. Um, we will run campaigns. We ran a campaign uh, earlier this year uh, in Oakland to get the city to include money in its budget for anti-displacement services. So they, they have now funded anti-displacement to the tune of $2.2 million for this year, up from zero dollars. Um, we did that in coalition with... That's good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> most of the credit for that actually goes to uh, our beloved Communities Coalition, which um, is a, a coalition of faith-based and grassroots organizations that uh, work in, uh, in the East Bay. Um, and we just kind of joined and... and so they what let us help them. So that's a great example of, of a campaign that you guys have just run that's been really successful. But um, I'm curious, what what kind of work are you guys doing? It sounds like there's a diverse set of projects that you could be working on. You're focusing on the whole Bay Area now. Mm -hmm. um, so is it activism and advocacy? Is it are you doing lobbying? Are you are you going into schools and bringing technology to classrooms? Like what are what? What kind of projects are you doing? Yeah, so we have three main buckets of activities. Uh, the first is just awareness raising. So um, most, many of us in the tech industry, myself included, are relatively new to the Bay Area, and um, these issues are really complicated. And so we need to create a ba baseline level of understanding of just like, wow, why does this work like this? Why is housing <laughs> policy so fucked up? And in order for us to be really, you know, effective citizens. So that's the first thing is just, uh, you know, awareness raising and knowledge building. And is that a particularly among tech workers or is that also in communities as a whole? No, our primary, the group that we are primarily focused on organizing are tech workers okay. or tech professionals. So people who consider themselves to be technologists, either they work at a tech company um, or they are a technologist working at a non-tech company or they are just a freelance whatever. Yeah. I'm, yeah. So knowledge building and awareness raising, uh, volunteer opportunities, and by this I mean meaningful volunteer opportunities. So how can people with a really valuable skill set meaningfully contribute those skills and resources and networks to 
some of the causes that we work on. Um, the first piece of work we're doing there is uh, board training. So if you are um, one of our members and you would want to join a nonprofit board, we will kind of train you on what that means. Like, what is what what are your legal responsibilities as a nonprofit board member, and then match you with organizations that are looking for new board members. Um, so not just the like, let's go to the clean up the park once a year kind of thing. Um, and then the third one, and arguably the most important one, is the advocacy piece. So or aggregating the voices of our members to advocate for um, progressive policy change on things that we think will close the inequality gap and help make, make it so that as the tech economy grows, it lifts all boats rather than, you know, wiping people out. Um, and the anti-displacement campaign was the first one we did in Oakland. Um, you know, as soon as the state uh, legislature is back in session in the fall, we'll be ramping up some campaigns at the state level um, Jerry Brown has now said it's his top, housing is his top priority and he's got 18 months left in office. So that's our window to get something done at the state level. Um, and we'll be opportunistic about other stuff to come. So what is like an actual, you know, the, the work that you do, the like meeting with people, you sit, you know, you have members, uh, that are, that are trying to do stuff. What is the actual work that, that you do and the organization does as a whole look like kind of on a physical day-to-day -day level? Does it look like endless meetings? Does it look like talking to beautiful people such as yourself? Does it look like, uh, you know, walking around Oakland and showing people who maybe aren't as familiar with the, the physical realities of, of the city? What, what does it actually look like? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you could boil it all down to relationship building. So um, either hopefully, you know, building relationships in rooms like this, talking to potential members, talking to potential member companies, um, talking to community partners, talking to policymakers, um, and really trying to understand how we can build bridges between the tech community and everybody else, and how we can make that that um, a meaningful opportunity for for people who work in tech. I mean, how many of you work would consider yourselves like a potential member of Tech Equity? Okay, most so, of the room. Like right now, it doesn't really feel great um, to work in tech in the Bay Area, generally. Um, and, you know, all of the work I'm doing is trying to figure out how to take the energy of the people in this industry who I know want share our values and want to contribute to solutions and, and, and say to them, look, this, there is a positive way to channel this, like what feels like kind of gnarly, you don't really know um, why everybody hates you and why you're the target, um, but, um, you have a lot of power, and there is a way you can use that power to, to affect positive change in your community. Um, and and us, you know, when we're at this place in, you know, global, universal discord and, um, you know, distress, this is where you can channel some of that energy as well on the ground and, like, in a meaningful way in, in the place where you live, um, affect positive change. So... Um, one of the uh, phrases that you've used that I think is really interesting is the idea of an uh, equality crisis, um, which I think we are all experiencing in the Bay Area. And I'm Equ Equity crisis. Equity crisis, yeah. sorry. Equity. And I actually had someone come to one of our first meetups who thought tech equity was about how do you get more of the chunk of your Yeah, company. that was why I was like, my brain turned it into equality crisis. I was crisis. like, oh, but it's like, I did not even think of that. Wow, okay. Yeah, so a crisis in, you know, inequality and in, yeah. in the Bay Area. And the, the question I have is, 
you know, how do you see that expressing itself most? Is it in housing and gentrification? Is it around education? Is there something around things like income, like a guaranteed minimum income possibly addressing it? Like where, where is the place where we're experiencing that crisis the most right now? Um, so, like, obviously in the Bay Area, housing is such a, um, it, it is such a uniquely um, fucked up situation. Um, <laughs> but I will say, and this is something that we hope, well, you asked me about the future question, so I'm kind of, like, prefacing a little bit here. But um, this is, in, to some degree, a crisis in every big uh, city, not just in America, but around the world. In America, how it manifests is, like, massive underinvestment for the last several decades, hundred years um, in urban communities. And, um, you know, 20 years ago or so when the creative class, you know, started being celebrated of like this movement of reurbanization and people moving back to cities, which should, yeah, on the face of it, be a really good thing. These, these communities that didn't, um, were underinvested in, were getting all this new investment. But the problem was that the communities that were there had no resiliency whatsoever to absorb that um, investment and to ride it out and to benefit from it. Um, and so everything you see, not just in the Bay Area, but in cities across the country, is an effect of that sort of dropping. It's like, you know, you have a drought and then it rains. All that water runs off and, it like, creates a flood. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing here. There's no ability for these communities to absorb that growth in a way that benefits the most vulnerable people. Um, and so that's really, it's not just housing, but housing really is the most urgent, I think, mm -hmm. of the issues. It's about underinvestment in education. It's about underinvestment in uh, public health. It's about underinvestment in all kinds of things that are just at the, you know, are just, you know, poverty, mm -hmm. I guess, writ large. So um, this is, this effort ultimately is about getting people who have privilege um, and work in the most, one of the, uh, you know, ascendant powerful industry in the world to focus their power on fixing those problems. Where they live, basically, yeah. yeah. What do you feel like success would look like? Like if you had your, you know, dream wish list fulfilled in the year 2037 in Oakland, what, what would that look like? How do you imagine Oakland to look in the best of all worlds if the efforts that you and your colleagues are putting forward is actually successful. Yeah. We want your utopian future yeah. Oakland. <laughs> I don't know if I would say this is utopia, but the thing that I like is in my mind when I'm thinking about what, what is the end game that we're driving towards? And it's a little bit flip, but it works for me in order to just like keep me focused is what if, you know, and let's not say Uber because Uber is uniquely challenged, but like, let's say another <laughs> big tech company announces they're moving to Oakland I want there to be a celebration instead of a protest. Um, and what is it going to take to get us to a point where the community sees that they have a stake in that, right? And so everything else backs up from there. Um, and I, I feel like that's the thing that I, you know, I am, is in my line of sight as I do everything I do on a day-to-day. -day. So what would that mean, though? So what would have to change to make, um, you know, Smoovel of the future. I'm imagining a future tech company. Wait, that what's we're it calling? Called? I, I was calling Smoogle. it Smoovel. Smoovel? or Smurgle. Cool. I don't know. Okay. Something like that. With no vowels. It does something. No, no vowels. <laughs> it does something like cloudy, okay. offshore, servery, drones, something like that. Okay. So uh, mobile <laughs> locations, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Um, so great. Smurbly has moved into Oakland. So what does Smurbly have to do 
to make people excited? Like, what would they have to invest in? What would they have to be doing for the community? Would they have to be guaranteeing jobs? Would they have to be... See, this is where I don't think it's about the company. And that's where we switched our focus. Like, okay. it's not about, you know... And this is what... It kind of frustrates me, and I, I'm sure this will be misinterpreted, but I don't think we should be trying to get Mark Zuckerberg to change, you know... He's... No one elected him, Right. Like, not yet. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. No, but he has not been elected to any office, and he's not accountable to us. Yeah. Um, but we live in a democracy where there are people who can make rules that Mark Zuckerberg is accountable to, and mm -hmm. we can exert influence on them. And I think if, you know, if we're all focused on let's try to wring as much money out of Uber before they move in as possible, that's not a sustainable way to get to the place I think uh, we want to go. So I think it's more important that we change the dynamics, the, the, the foundational dynamics, um, so that when a company like Schmergle moves into <laughs> Oakland, um, they're moving into a place that people feel like, oh, yeah, this is like that job could be mine. And my small business can survive here. And like, I know that I can, I'm not going to get pushed out of my apartment um, because some, you know, engineer at Schmergle needs to, a place to live, you know? And those are the things that, if we're relying on the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world to change them, that's a, not, that's a scary dystopian future. I think I'm still like bullish on democracy and I feel like we need to hold um, our public officials accountable to their responsibilities to create the conditions where um, capitalism, I'm saying the bad word. No, uh, I mean, can work, we live can in capitalism. So the idea would be to change um, local laws or state laws so that there's enough housing for people and enough protection for businesses and enough transit. And yeah, that and maybe that means we pass laws that say, you know, certain kinds of companies need to do X or there's a, a new tax or whatever it is. Um, that's fine, but I don't think we, our approach should be let's get those companies to do those, you know, voluntarily, which is really actually with a gun to their head and who knows how long, you know, they're not accountable to us. Like they don't have to keep those practices in place. Um, so I just don't know. I don't think that's a very sustainable strategic approach for so the long term. It's government reform. It's city management reform. Yeah. I mean, at every level of government. Yeah. You talked a moment ago about this new $2 million displacement fund. Mm -hmm. What does that fund actually do? Where does that money go? How does that affect like actual people? Yeah. So first, just on anti-displacement, I think this is a, an issue in the housing conversation that really gets overlooked mm -hmm. um, a lot, which, you know, a lot of people are like, we need to build more units of housing. We need to build more affordable housing. Uh, but we also need to help people stay where they are. Um, and there's a lot of, um, you know, low hanging fruit. Like there are uh, uh, vulturous landlords who are preying on vulnerable tenants. Uh, they want to push them out so that they can raise the rent um, and move, you know, make more money. Um, and a lot of the people who are getting those notices don't know their rights. Um, and there are organizations like Casa Justa Just Cause, the East Bay Community Law Center, Central Legal, that um, provide services that help those people figure out what their rights are and then support them legally if, if need be. Um, they are massively underfunded. They're not serve, you know, they don't have enough money to serve the number of people who are affected. Um, and what we were asking the city of Oakland to do was to take some of the, you know, $1.2 billion of the city's budget and put it towards what the policymakers claim is their number one uh, priority. 
um, and and doing that in partnership with the groups who are most. So is that just like kind affected. of grants or yep. essentially yeah, cash money from to the city to those okay. organizations that will help them hire more lawyers, uh, m- more people to provide um, counseling, housing counseling. Um, there's also some. Uh, uh, emergency rental assistance, so money for people who got evicted and they need first, last, and security, or else they're going to be on the street or, you know, make next month's rent so they don't get evicted, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which, $2.2 million serves uh, thousands of, of people. Um, I think the cost of building a new unit of housing in Oakland is $400,000, and I, we need new units of housing. We do. Um, but we can also make an effect now with people who are being displaced now to help them stay here. Yeah, that's important. So what are the, what do you, if, if that's kind of a good start so far, where, where do you, what's the sort of next, is there another project that's underway or is going to be underway soon? That's- Nothing we can announce right now, but like I said, the state is where things are going to happen over the next 18 months. And honestly, after working with municipal, a, a municipal campaign and understanding just like the wild, um, rat's nest of jurisdictions that make up the Bay Area, if we were going to tackle this, you know, city by city or county by county or whatever, town by town, um, we wouldn't we wouldn't get there fast enough. So something something's got to give at the state level. So what do you think about um, the idea of uh, guaranteed minimum income programs? This is something that Y Combinator has floated doing in Oakland. I don't know if it's actually happening. Supposedly it's happening. It is, yeah, as far as I know. I don't know. I mean, they're obviously doing it pretty quietly. I don't know anything about yeah. Yeah. You know, there's early what data. Do you, what do you think about the idea of that? Do you think that that is a, a helpful idea for what you guys are looking at? Or is it kind of orthogonal to what you're doing? I or? mean, I'll be honest. I haven't put a ton of thought into it. So I don't want to go out on a limb and say something stupid and not thought through, but, um, why not? I mean, I, I, I'm open to having the conversation and I love the fact that like people are talking about what are this, how do we fix the safety net? Um, there's talk, you know, chatter about maybe we do a ballot measure on expanding the earned income tax credit, which is essentially a form of basic income. You like give people money back through the form of their tax return. Um, and maybe a, a step down that path. Um, you know, I do think whether it's because a whole bunch of jobs are going to get automated or just because we're not taking care of poor people now, uh, we need to figure out how to fix, fix the safety net. Um, if you would like to ask a question. Hi. Uh, so there was a bill a couple of years ago to amend, or I guess, get rid of the Ellis Act at the state level and it went nowhere. Do you think we're ever going to be able to do something about the Ellis Act? It's a law that basically allows landlords to evict people more easily. It's a state law. It's used a lot in San Francisco and Oakland. And it creates a lot of situations where it's easier to evict people. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot about um, the Ellis Act. But I do know, um, speaking of sort of renter protection laws, um, Costa-Hawkins, which is the state-level rent control law, which has outlawed rent control on buildings built after 1995, um, there is a bill right now um, in the assembly to repeal it, um, which would essentially would not mean that all of a sudden all of those units become, uh, you know, rent controlled that were built after 1995, but that municipalities would be able, would be free to make their own rules and maybe expand the rules around rent control that apply to buildings before 1995 to buildings after it. Um, there's some interplay between those two, like how the incentives connect between the Ellis Act and Costa Hawkins. Our next event, this is a great plug, 
Uh, September 7th, we're actually doing a, our, our next event on rent control in Costa Hawkins, and the Ellis Act, I'm sure, will come up there. So there will be a lot more conversation about, you know, what what should we do? Not like not just should we repeal Costa Hawkins, but what does the sort of package of rent control um, or rent protect renter protections need to look like at the state level? As you know, there's all this energy around new bills to streamline development and. Um, fund new affordable housing. How do we keep uh, the the renter protection question still in in the viewfinder? Hi. Um. Actually, two questions. Um. What is the status of Uber in Oakland? Because initially, it's not now what it was initially. And and secondly, are you considering getting involved with like rules of engagement for tech companies in Oakland? Like no corporate cafeterias. You know, go out and patronize our local restaurants for mm-hmm. your, um, yeah. I do not speak for Uber. So really what I'm reporting <laughs> is just like what I've heard on the street. But my understanding is, first of all, they own the building. So it's not like, you know, they don't still have a stake in Oakland. Um, my understanding is that they are, mo- you know, they, they announced they're moving 2,500. We bought this building. It's going to be a home to 2,500 employees. Um, they then subsequently said, oh, no, we're only moving 400 in on move-in day. My well-informed opinion there is that it's not about their growth or they are backing out of Oakland. They just couldn't work out the logistics of what teams were going to sit in that building and figuring out, like, on day one when this building opens, who those 2,500 people were going to be. So they're trying to phase it in um, instead of doing it all at once. And they're going to lease out the rest of the space to other offices. That's my – I don't know that for a fact. That's just my – projection i mean they're growing they're still growing really fast so like in their projections they're going to fill that space maybe they're not going to fill it as fast as they thought um but they own the building uh and it's not for sale so they're they're going to do something with it so the other part of that question was um is there any are you working at all on um regulating tech companies like preventing them from having lunchrooms so that they have to patronize uh local businesses or yeah, I mean, yes, uh, but I'll say, like, where that was the primary focus of our work, how can you be a better corporate citizen? Um, we still want to do that, but there, we did have this recognition that we need to, we need to dig deeper and that we're not going to fix the underlying problems just by making sure every tech employee goes out to eat during the day. Um, so while we do, we will encourage that stuff and we're going to help companies kind of develop a better practice, um, around what it means to be a, a citizen, a neighbor. Um, what's more important is that the people who live here and work here, um, you know, and do business here are making their voices heard on these issues that are really going to fix the underlying economic dynamics. Hi. Uh, is your nonprofit going to address any education or startup costs for businesses to uh, flourish under tech companies moving in like just you said lunch so like small businesses that are not Mm. tech companies you know it's been on the radar but a little bit out of at least the initial scope um i would love to get to it uh, eventually and we're definitely what we definitely are doing is making sure that as part of that you know tech companies be better neighbors and citizens piece that we're recommending to them organizations that they can Um, vendors that they can do business with that are, you know, equitable, 
vendors. So like um, employer or companies that employ formerly incarcerated people or, you know, they're going to buy that stuff from somewhere. They should, you know, at least make an effort to get it from companies that are contributing back to the community. Um, so we'll do that. Uh, and we've already got a partnership with Red Bay Coffee. Um, so we're incur both our members get a discount from Red Bay and we're encouraging companies that we come into contact with to use Red Bay um, as well kind of first foray into that work. I just I had a quick follow up to that question, which is, do you actually have companies come to you and say, like, help us do this? Yes. Um, and, and honestly, there's a lot of um, we got a lot of interest in Oakland and there's a lot of tech companies here um, that are relatively small. And so, you know, their their individual impact is going to be really low. But that and that's one of the reasons why we thought. Um, working with the individuals who work in those companies could might be a little bit more of an efficient way for us to get to change than working with the companies. Um, but yes, they, you know, I'm really, I'm really kind of proud of the Oakland tech scene as it is and the, and the companies that have chosen to put down roots here, um, uh, you know, up to now have really done so because they saw value in this place. And are there companies in particular that, or that you th feel like are, doing it right or, or on the way to doing it right? Like, well, Pandora is obviously the biggest, um, and they're kind of, you know, they're the, they get a lot of, uh, accolades for being pretty community oriented. Um, they're at like a way different scale than every other, you know, most every other tech company in Oakland. They're publicly traded for one thing, which changes the dynamic totally. Most tech companies in Oakland are really small. Like something like 70% of them are 10 employees or less. Um, some of our original members, when we were doing the Oakland tech thing, um, Josephine, which is a company that, um, like a, a, a platform for home chefs to sell food out of their kitchens. And they actually did a lot of policy work to make it possible for those, those, um, entrepreneurs to get, um, licensed by the public health department. Um, uh, now I'm blanking on, oh, um, Captricity, which is a GovTech company. Um, Comfy, which is sort of like a nest, an enterprise nest um, company. So these are all companies that are based in Oakland that are that are really great, you know, corporate citizens. Um, they're not as famous as the Ubers and the Googles of the world. So my question is: Your utopian vision, 2030, Schmoogle moves in. And Oakland celebrates. Well, I don't know if that's utopia. It's just like <laughs> that, that's a, a good that, long-term goal. That's that's yeah. an aim. Yeah, yeah. That you have. There's also like grapes and wine, and right. you know, no one ever gains any weight or gets old. And, Ta da! Yeah. Um, do you have that? That's such a foreign idea to me mm -hmm. right now. Um, do you have some examples of like places where that happens? Maybe it's not Schmoogle moving in, but you know, like some other large employer comes to a place like what does a place have to look like in order for it to be excited about a big company arriving like when I imagine that I'm imagining like a factory job showing up yeah. to a rust belt city or suburb uh, that's decimated and where people can get jobs there like what yeah so what does that interaction between a company and a place look like yeah so I would I would say not now um, I think Seattle is probably the best example of this at the moment of a place that has like an, it's a, it isn't, it is a, an already kind of thriving metropolis um, that is figuring out how to balance 
um, the needs of, you know, economic growth with supporting the entire socioeconomic spectrum. Um, they're not getting it 100% right, but, you know, they're definitely doing a better job than we are. Um, the example I like to, I grew up outside of Detroit in the 80s, and, you know, I think the auto industry, obviously there are some lessons to be drawn for how it, it crashed, but, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, um, it was an end, like, it was a real partner in, and with the city and with the community, and people saw that as, like, my fortune, my, my um, you know, good fortune is tied to the good fortune of this company. Now, whether that's like a good dynamic to have, I don't know. Like this is where we get into some of the safety net stuff. But you could get a good middle class job. And I went to school with kids whose parents worked on the assembly line at the Ford plant. And um, but for that, wouldn't have gone to college and wouldn't have been able to, you know, support an income or, you know, a, a, a family. Um, and pull their families out of, of generational poverty. So I feel like there's a way to look at some lessons there. Um, and I don't, and, and also understand like why it, it collapsed um, and figure out how to make sure that, you know, we can figure out how those companies, how tech companies here can grow in the same sort of broad based way that those manufacturing communities did at the time. For better or potentially worse, I don't know. Lessons, lessons. <laughs> Hi, you mentioned earlier that um, the median income in that neighborhood in Oakland, where Uber was moving in, was uh, relatively low compared to the high uh, cost of new units. Mm -hmm. That sounds like you know, uh, really like a recipe for a bad experience if your income is six, one sixteenth of the cost of a housing unit. So. Is that part of what you're looking at is the supply side of housing, like maybe some of the nimbyism stuff? Obviously, if you're building a million-dollar unit, uh, the pers like spending a couple hundred thousand dollars on planning isn't a big deal. But if you're building a $400,000 unit, that's half the cost. Yeah, I mean, there is this... Um, uh, the, the politics of housing are really... Uh, Insane. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I see, I, I have been immersed. I have this like really unique perspective right now because I'm still kind of naive about it, but I know enough to have this like awakening, you know, like, man, this is really fucked in like really interesting ways. Um, <laughs> and my like freshman in college, naive and optimistic point of view on this is like, why can't we just have a both and approach? Why does everyone on that on the spectrum of housing politics feel like if someone else gets something, it's a zero sum game and I'm not going to get my thing? Like, um, you know, people who advocate for affordable housing uh, don't want any other um, don't want market rate housing to get built because that is viewed as like it's going to take away our opportunity to build affordable housing and even in the like affordable housing versus anti-displacement, like this is a dynamic I saw working on this campaign, they're pitted against each other for scarce resources. And that is so, that is the, the crux of why this is such a hard problem to break that like we don't, we can't get to a place where people agree that we need to do all of these things together. So yes, we need to build um, uh, market rate housing but market rate housing now, market rate is like basically luxury housing. 
Um, we need to build affordable housing that's like middle-class affordable housing that should just be, you know, a teacher and a, a nurse can afford to raise a family here. Um, and then like um, truly affordable housing, like subsidized housing. Um, and we need to help people stay in the places that are currently affordable to them right now and not get, you know, Ellis acted or whatever into a place where that's unaffordable. And we need to serve people who are living on the streets. Um, and the fact that like we can't figure out, and this is where I feel like tech's audacity and imagination should help. Like the fact that we can't figure out how we can do all of those things and how, you know, affordable housing isn't pitted against, you know, nurses and teachers trying to stay here. Uh, that to me feels like the real problem. It's a, it's a political and a social problem. I wanted to get back to Smurgle. Um, and uh, why we're all celebrating. Because I think one of the things that happens when tech companies come in to a community is that they offer really nice jobs to these professional middle-class developers, but then uh, people who drive the buses, who work security, who cook the food, who clean, uh, who do QA, those people wind up having really uh, shitty contract jobs mm -hmm. where they don't have benefits, they're treated like, they're absolutely treated like second-class citizens. And I'm wondering if, if that's a place where we can start to wedge in and try to fix things, too. Maybe is, is there a way to have laws that require that companies don't just have these contract workers that, that are just kind of their uh, reserve army of people they can just toss aside? Or Yeah, and I think this is actually a really bright spot in the modern labor movement, going back to, like, the what can we draw, what lessons can we draw from Detroit of the 50s? Um, you know, there's actually been a lot of progress over the last few years in um, raising working standards for, you know, the contract employees. And many of them are, there is a little bit of a trend of not just like helping protect them in the jobs that they're in, you know, technically, legally, they're employees of the contractors. There's some work to get the companies to put influence on the contractors. There's also work to get companies to hire those people as employees. And in fact, you know, Uber of all companies, um, actually used to have um, the the people who work in their, like, driver service centers. So, like, if you're an Uber driver, you go to the, like, you know, um, I don't know, the pull-up window or whatever to talk to someone about your, your driving gig. Um, the people who worked those service centers used to be contractors. They're now employees um, of Uber. And so there is a little, we, we do see a little bit of a push in that direction, which I'm really hopeful about. And it's due to a lot of labor organizers um, who've been working mostly in, in the peninsula, um, Silicon Valley Rising and, and others who um, have done great work on, on helping to lift those people up. But obviously still a lot more work to do and a lot of awareness to raise. But And this is definitely a place where tech workers can raise their voices. Um, those are your coworkers too. I was just wondering, how do we ensure that a young person who goes K through 12 in education in Oakland gets a job in submerging economy in the city. Yeah. Not only a job, but a job where they can buy a house and raise a family. Well, buy a house, like even I can't uh, buy a house. Like, <laughs> that's asking a lot right now. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, our sec I've talked a lot about housing, but as you'll see from the handouts, um, our, the other issue that we, um, or second issue that we focus on a lot is workforce development. And that's, uh, again, not just like what is, uh, how do companies do a better job of hiring people, which they should, but how do we do a better job of funding a workforce development system that actually works for the current economy? Um, and 
I think, I honestly think, you know, I think there's a lot going on at the K through 12 level that we're just not going to see dividends on for a decade because the kids are still in school. So I'm pretty hopeful about all the programs that are out there that are helping kids get um, the kind of grounding they need to be prepared for the 21st century economy. Um, and there are many of them are Oakland based. So, um, uh, Kino labs and hidden genius project and, um, and so many others, there's like dozens and dozens of them working with, with kids in Oakland. Um, black girls code, which I think they're in Oakland, their offices in Oakland. Um, yeah. Um, so we'll see in 10 years. But honestly, there are people now who have skills to take jobs in tech companies. Um, they might not be able to write code. And this is one of my biggest pet peeves is this obsession with everyone needing to learn to write code in order to work in the tech industry. Um, there are jobs, at least 50% of the jobs in the tech industry are non-technical roles. And um, we're not doing a good enough job of finding a pipeline of people. Like if you worked in customer service, or retail, or you know, anywhere where you had to deal with people, you can do a customer success job or a sales job at a tech company or an operations job. Um, and, and we need to do a better job of figuring out how to help people translate the skills that they have from those other experiences into a tech job, how that looks in the tech industry. And we have to do a better job of getting tech companies to recognize skill sets that aren't you know, pattern matching what they already know. Um, that's a big issue. And I think, honestly, I do think government has a role to play in figuring out how we fund those kinds of initiatives. So uh, to finish up, why don't you tell us how we can get involved in tech equity? Yes. Well, <laughs> um, all of you members of the tech community should join. You can do it on your phone right now. We have a very beautiful mobile responsive site, techequitycollaborative.org slash join. Um, it's free. Um, we, if you want to be a sustaining member, $150 a year, you get free access to all of our events and a whole bunch of other fun goodies. We're about to, about to launch a book club, um, preview here. We're going to be reading Evicted. Has anyone read Evicted yet? Oh my gosh. It's so good. Uh, it was on New York Times top 10 books of the year last year. Um, it's about, um, uh, Milwaukee, actually, but it's sort of, you know, kind of expands into housing policy generally, and it follows a bunch of families who are living in poverty and um, how they basically get victimized by um, landlords and government um, and just trying to find a place to live. Um, and uh, so we're doing a couple fun things around that, which I encourage you to, to join and find out more about. Um, we're going to be launching, like I said, if you're a member, we're going to be asking you to do some things in the fall when um, the legislative session gets ramping up. Um, and also, like I mentioned, the board member training stuff. We're doing a lot of programs now for our members. So really the big ask is just to join us. Um, and if you work at a company that you think would be interested in, you know, supporting us to bring this message to the rest of your coworkers, then we'd love to talk to you about potentially doing a corporate membership uh, with your companies as well. All right. Well, thanks again for coming. Thanks and remember, everybody. buy lots of drinks. Thanks to Tip Eli's Mile staff. High Club. Thank you, Eli. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here, Catherine. This was awesome.